Welcome to episode 77 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. And we are sitting in James's lovely new apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans. And you are listening to the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. <laughs> There's got to be a more concise way to say that. <laughs> we talk about movies. We're in New Orleans. That's pretty much the gist of it. Yeah. It's Mardi Gras right now, too. So this is a very strange time to sit down and have a Friday night chat about uh, films. I'm surprised you found a place to park, honestly. <laughs> it's not so bad. Not right now? No. I don't know. They're out there camping with their ladders and spray painting their names on their Fucking spot. psychopaths. Yeah. I hate those people. They could be sitting in this room right now talking about M. Night Shyamalan movies. Think of all the things they're missing out on. While they're chucking Bud Light in the parking lot of Winn-Dixie. <laughs> 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 they're busy. They have their priorities. I don't know about you, but I feel like I've already had a full-ass Mardi Gras. I went to a film festival, three drag shows, and this like two weekend wrestling event that like chokehold thing that's like drag and wrestling at the same time, all in like the span of a week. So I feel like I've just been recovering since then. Any parades? Though? Any actual? Oh yeah, I went to T Rex, which is like the tiny shoebox float parades, mm-hmm. and I went to Crew de Vue, which is like the dirty political quarter yeah, parade. Made it to that one. Did you go to Barkus? No, I missed it. It's cute. Yeah. Little dogs. Have you been doing any other Mardi Gras stuff? I know I dragged you out to French Film Fest for one. French Film Fest did that. Did the Chewbacca thing. Yeah. Honestly, that was it as far as Mardi Gras. That kind of starts tomorrow for me because I live so close to the Endymion route. So definitely going to do it kind of big tomorrow. And you just moved. So have you had any time to watch movies in the last like few weeks? Honestly, no, I haven't. I feel really ashamed to say that. (laughs) As a movie, supposed movie reviewer that's on a podcast, all TV shows lately, dude. Good I, TV shows? Yeah, yeah, great. You know, and it's got me thinking, too. Like, one of the shows I really got into is Russian Doll. Loved it. Oh, you've seen it? Yeah. And there's been other ones, too, where they're so short, they kind of... Like, there was this movie, uh, Homecoming, with... Or, sorry, called it a movie. It was a TV show with Julia Roberts uh-huh. that kind of felt the same way. It feels like a long extended movie. And I want to say that one's based on a podcast. Uh, oh, like it a is. Fictional podcast. It is. That's yeah. bizarre. Yeah. But yeah, especially with Russian doll, I was like, this could have played in the theaters. Yeah. I, I understand like people love that, like binge watching, like prestige TV thing. Uh, for me, it's harder to like squeeze in TV shows. Cause I'm like, I could watch two movies or three movies in that span of time. Right. Uh, instead of like one TV show, I like to pack them in. <laughs> yeah. No. And I get that. I think with some of these though, there is a difference the way a TV show like kind of feels. And some of these like shows, like we're mentioning do have a cinematic kind of quality where it, even though it wasn't technically a movie, it felt like watching a movie. Well, Russian Doll is written by one of my favorite like young directors. Her name's Leslie Headland. She mm-hmm. did Bachelorette, which is that really fucked up like yeah. play movie. And then she also did Sleeping with Other People, which I made you watch for the podcast. Which was awesome. Yeah. And I feel like that show Russian Doll has that same like brutally honest, like unflinching dark soul to it, but it's also like this sci fi time loop narrative. Going into it, I thought it was gonna be this like groundhogs day kind of moral like oh she just has to learn how to be a good person and she'll get out of the time loop and it goes so much darker into that idea so anyway so yeah i watched that i've been watching i watched a new season of atlanta which is fabulous i watched killing eve 
the assassination of Gianni Versace. So a lot of TV, like really good TV shows. And besides that, it's been the Shyamalan movies for this <laughs> podcast, which we're going to talk about in uh, an upcoming segment. But yeah. Love that guy. Yeah. I'm and a huge was fan now. <laughs> really fun to go back because I was always kind of a fan. I had to defend him to some people and going back and watching pretty much his entire catalog. Yeah. He's one of my favorite directors alive right now. This is my second Shyamalan episode in a row because me and Brittany recorded on Valentine's Day about his Unbreakable trilogy was the last mm-hmm. episode of this podcast. And yeah, I feel like I was watching nothing but his stuff for like almost a month solid. And I did not watch a movie I didn't enjoy. <laughs> yeah, I had the same reaction. But so anyway, so that's kind of been my my media consumption yeah. lately. What about yourself? I can name like two trips to the theater recently that I really enjoyed that you might be interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was this film called I Want to Eat Your Pancreas. Oh, I heard about that. I saw the title somewhere and then I had to read about it because it is too good. It's a very memorable title, right? Yeah. And it sounds like a, you know, 80s zombie, like gross out film, but it's actually a teen romance, like a YA romance, and it's an anime. Uh, the reason I think you might be interested in it is because I've seen a few anime films since your name that have like just started using tropes from that movie because it was like a huge hit in Japan the way it was mm-hmm. in America. And then since that like box office hit, it's basically become a genre. And like there's like certain trappings to like the your name movie. Like there's always a CG fireworks display and there's always some sort of like sci-fi conceit that like breaks from reality. Mm-hmm. And then there's this really earnest teen romance set to I want to call it like power pop that mm-hmm. like kind of like it's a little proggy, it's a little emo uh soundtrack. That I've never heard before your name, but now I've heard it in like several films that are kind of like riffing on it since then. Hmm. That band was called the Radwimps in that movie. I don't know what these other bands are called because I haven't really been looking into it. So you said it's a like a zombie. No, I just think the title sounds like that. So what is the actual plot? It's kind of like a mix of your name and The Fault in Our Stars. This kid falls in love with his classmate who is a girl who's dying of a pancreatic disease. The title is this like cheeky thing that's explained like very early on, like, oh, it's said that in ancient medicine, if you were sick, you would eat the thing that you were sick with. Like if you had like mm-hmm. kidney failure, you would eat like, you know, chicken kidneys until you felt better. Uh, and she like tells him, I want to eat your pancreas. Sound uh, science. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like a cute joke that the movie like explains very quickly what its title comes from. What I think is interesting about how the movie is handled is it feels like this like terrible mishandling of that story at first it feels like me earl and the dying girl which i don't know if you ever saw Mm -mm, but in that movie this like very boring protagonist falls in love with this girl who's dying of cancer and she's so much more interesting than him and it's like why aren't we following her around we're following this like dip Mm. and this is the same thing we we get this kid's like inner thoughts and his like anxiousness and like this manic pixie dying girl turns his like life around by making him come out of his shell Mm -hmm. the difference is here at the end he reads her diary and then we get in like one quick swoop all of this inner life from her perspective and retelling the whole movie and flipping it on its side. And we see exactly what she was getting out of their relationship. And it's kind of like this miracle ending that feels like genuinely emotional. It's the first time in the film that they break from reality. So like in these year name movies, there's usually something spectacular but really, this is just like a high school YA romance drama until the end where when he's reading her diary, he visualizes this like 
Sailor Moon sequence where she's like flying around in these like cherry blossom trees on this like planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also inspired by the Little Prince explicitly. Like they reference that book a lot. And during that, you get her like inner monologue where she like explains how she's been seeing things and like recontextualizing everything you've seen before. And it actually pulls this trick of like becoming a better movie in like five minutes. So that's like a, so that's just a very short brief part you're talking about. Yeah. But it really changes the entire context of everything you've been watching and like really like flips the movie around and saves it. I think so. uh, Shyamalan twist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I just thought you might be interested that there's all these like your name type, like YA anime films. He's like, I I feel ashamed that I've seen the fault in your stars and not your name, which is, you haven't seen that. I have not seen that. Oh, We are definitely doing that for the podcast. I thought you had seen that. No. And I've seen it. I've actually, I rented it from the library and I did Uh, not watch it. And I just feel so, I just wasted all this breath on you. I was like, I thought I had you on the hook. (laughs) No, I, I mean, you have me on the hook. We're doing your name. Okay. Uh, And another one, I definitely know you would be interested in at least the context of it. I saw fighting with my family. Uh, Are you aware of that film? No. It's in the theaters right now. It's a biopic on the WWE wrestler page. Oh, okay. I didn't, I forgot that was the name of it. Was that, I heard it good things about it. I'll admit I was in kind of like an emotional state when I went to go see it. Like I was having a rough day Mm -hmm. and I cried and laughed harder than I expected for like the entire runtime. Like a maniac. Okay. (laughs) It was so good. I was so skeptical when I heard that was coming out. I was like, there's no way that they can actually pull this off. That's maybe why I had like an unexpected emotional reaction to it as well. Like the look of it has that same like Disney channel original sheen that all WWE's content kind of has. It's like this overproduced, very careful revisionist history about like their lore. Right. And I remember watching WWE and they actually showed an extended scene from it. And that's kind of the feeling I got. I was like, Oh no, this is going to be bad. It has two things going for it out of the gate. One is, Florence Pugh plays Paige, uh, and she was really good in this movie Lady Macbeth a couple years ago. And the other is that it's written and directed by Stephen Merchant, who's you know that tall, lanky, blonde yeah, he's British hilar- comedian. He's it's very funny. Yeah, and the movie is so dirty. So you're watching this thing that looks like a Disney Channel original, but all the jokes are like raunchy because it's a bunch of rowdy wrestlers. It's basically like a family of carnies. They're all in the wrestling business together, and they're like kind of jocular and joking about each other's like farts and boners even though they're like brother and sister and father and daughter that that kind of reminds me of what we've talked about with john cena how he has this like very cookie cutter kid-friendly appearance but then he actually likes really dirty comedies like it seems like it's kind of mixing yeah like blockers and stuff Mm -hmm. i think wrestling kind of exists in that same gray area where it's like kind of for kids but like they're always saying bitch on the show and like there's always like sexual innuendos. Or, to yeah. It. Or New Day's dropping some obscure, dirty reference. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the movie kind of gets that, you know, aesthetic down. But also just Paige's story is just really interesting. I ended up watching the documentary the movie was based on as well called The Wrestlers Fighting With My Family from mm-hmm. BBC. And that's free on Vimeo if you don't feel like trekking out to the theater for the biopic. But the biopic's actually really well done. And I was kind of in love with it cool basically like her family is this like wrestling carny family that trained her to be a pro wrestler yeah i know she started wrestling when she was really young what like 13 13, yeah and then she gets signed unexpectedly she's like the breakout star and she you know goes off to the wwe and starts training and 
her plan is like, oh, I'm going to change the the shape of like women's wrestling. I'm going to get rid of the era where women are just TNA eye candy. Braun panties matches. Yeah. You know, instead of X models and X cheerleaders, they're going to have like wrestlers in here. Now, the thing the movie does that's like really smart and like kind of caught me off guard is that it offers so much empathy to these like women who are the X models and X cheerleaders and like their motivations for being there and doesn't just mm-hmm. dismiss them as like something to be fought off. And the movie just all around like has so much empathy for each person while recognizing their faults. It's like so nuanced and well-written in this way. I just did not expect. What other films have, has Stephen Merchant written or is this? Well, I know he works a lot with Ricky Gervais. I don't know if I've ever seen him do something by himself before. Okay. To be honest. I, I just find him very funny. So it's not surprising that this would have a good sense of humor. It's hilarious. And it's also really touching in this way I did not expect. And I didn't mind watching Vince Vaughn for two hours somehow. Like, I liked his character and thought he was a oh, good that's performer. Right, he isn't. And I usually yeah. hate him. <laughs> so, I don't know. The movie just won me over in every way I did not expect. And I think at the end of the year, since it's, like, bombing right now, this will be one of those things where, like, word of mouth, like, video on demand releases. Like, what are the overlooked films of 2019? I think this one will be coming up. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sold. Please go see it. Yeah, that sounds very good. And I'll even say the BBC documentary that has, like, the same name something you get from that you don't get from the movie is like how fucking young she was she was signed at like 18 and she's just like this baby it's so sad too because like you know she's had to retire yeah and she's only 26 or 27 yeah so but she's already put like over a decade of abuse on her body it's also weird the movie like acknowledges aj lee's involvement with her storyline too which i thought was kind of cool because you know she's kind of a pariah for the company Mm -hmm. uh they kind of mischaracterize her as if she's one of the bellas or something but uh, I don't know. A lot of good context for if you're a wrestling fan, but I don't think you need to be to enjoy it. This is like a good family story. I'm saying that it not like also not like a Paddington a Two family t- story. Like no, it's about a family and all their faults and all their like strengths, and it's honest and it's inspiring and made me cry like a baby. <laughs> That's got Brandon's seal of approval. Yeah, right it's there. great. Uh, and today, major twist: we're talking about M Night Shyamalan movies all episode. <laughs> And then one little sci-fi film before that that has nothing to do with him. <laughs> and all that's coming up to you right now. Because giant squid were myths until one washed up on a beach. People used to think people with rabies and porphyria were vampires. But that doesn't mean vampires are real. It means science hadn't caught up with the myth. And even if I knew I'm supernatural, it doesn't prove anything about... Fear of the unknown makes a lot of really pretty stuff, though. And now it's time for our regular Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And I was the one that got to select this time. And I wanted to show you a movie that came up when we did our best of the year list for last year. And you brought up the movie The Endless. Mm -hmm. Uh, These two directors, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, directed Resolution and The Endless. And in between those films at some point, they also directed this film Spring which I really enjoyed. I think it made like my best films of 2015 list. Oh, really? It's this really great like Lovecraftian romance horror. It's very emotive with these like big ideas. And I think I enjoyed it more than those other two films. So I was kind of surprised you hadn't seen it yet. Yeah, and I think it definitely more than Resolution. And for me, probably as much as Endless, it has this like really solid emotional core to it. And I actually, for some reason, I thought it came before those two films. So going into it, I thought it was going to be this kind of unpolished, you know, their kind of first 
movie and those growing pains. But now I guess it makes sense that it was her second because it feels so like well-crafted. It feels like a bigger production than anything else they've done, right? Yeah, like, even The Endless, it felt like, I guess maybe, I don't know how much money they spent, but The Endless still felt like this kind of lower budget thing. Same thing as Resolution, but this felt like there's these gorgeous shots of they're like on location in Italy and the special effects are like really, really solid too. So it, it feels like bigger production. Like a legitimate and, like Hollywood picture almost instead of like two guys who are really good at graphics doing you know their best on a laptop, which is how the other two films feel. Yeah. Even they th- Those two are very good because they are very talented special effects guys, but there's something like more like legit Hollywood production. Yeah, and it this. reminded me too reading a little bit about the movie, I know Guillermo del Toro was really high on it. So it was like one of his favorite horror. I don't know if you, I guess it's kind of a horror. It's yeah, a body it, horror. It's like horror romance. But it was like one of his favorite movies of the decade. And it kind of does have a Guillermo del Toro vibe to it, like early del Toro. But um, yeah, I, I really, um, I really enjoyed it. It kind of was like before sunset or sunrise, like that kind of, romantic vibe mixed with i guess like possession yeah or like those kind of movies and it it didn't go where i thought it was going to go which was nice and refreshing i thought it was going to be one of these you know the monster finally eats the dude and kills him and it was like it was a much more nuanced sad beautiful story that could have gone in like this dark direction but really to me it was more like a, a romance yeah film than anything else it was like masked as like a body horror monster movie, but at its core, it was, yeah, it was just like a nice love story. And if there's anything that like is consistent between this and resolution and endless is that they make kind of movies about ordinary bros in these like supernatural situations. Like it kind of reminds me of the kind of people we would see around LSU when we both mm-hmm. went up there. In this case, this like bartender, his like parents have both just died of like long-term illnesses and he's, Finally got nothing left. And he, like, loses his job on the day his mother dies. Gets in a bar fight. Which is really a really bad day. Did you catch in that bar fight scene that he his co-worker's name is Shitty Carl, who's a character in Resolution? In Resolution, yeah. So I, I did, guess this I is connected it. in some way. I don't, it's pretty half-assed. It just seems like a little Easter egg yeah. thing to kind of tie it into this larger universe. But so this guy's jobless and familyless and like kind of running out of friends. And what are you going to do at this point? So he spends all his inheritance money on this trip to Italy. Well, actually, there's just trip to Europe. And he just sort of ends up in Italy after meeting up with these like football hooligans in England. And his decision to go to Italy is because he asks like, where should I go? And someone's like, white people love Italy. So he just <laughs> right, decides right. to go there. And pretty quickly, he finds this woman who is trying to stand out. He's in this little tourist town by the shore. Mm. This woman's wearing this bright red, like cocktail dress in this, um, in the middle of just like bland, nothing, not, not bland, but like everything's got this yellow old world, like ancient look to her. And she's like dressed up as this like siren to lure in the tourists to hit on her. And she, you know, kind of lures them in with like a promise of like casual sex. And then uh, we find out kills them. Uh, it takes a little while to figure out exactly why. Uh, is she like, you know, a drug smuggler? Is she like, you know, just a psychopathic killer? No, she's an ancient being 
that mm-hmm. needs sperm to sort of cannibalize chromosomes and tr- transform into a new creature. Right. And so she's made up of creatures from our evolutionary past is kind of how they explain it. And they do explain it, which I think is pretty interesting because it kind of describing it seems a little convoluted, but there's a long scene where she really goes into detail and kind of lays down the laws of this whole curse that she has, you know, the 2000 years old and her, her like cells die like every 20 years. And if she gets pregnant, she takes the stem cells from the baby and then regenerates as a new person. But if she, if her body can tell that she's in love, it won't absorb the baby and then she'll become mortal again. Like this sounds ludicrous, but it's played pretty straight. And, um, and I think that's where the before sunrise comparisons come in is that these long mm-hmm. conversations where he asks her questions. Right. And she explains in like plain language and starts like as she opens up to this guy and like starts telling him stories from like five, six hundred years ago when she was like a different person. All or, the time. or he also finds some like paintings around town that are of, of her. her. Yeah. No stuff like that. And I think also they're like going out of their way in those scenes to make sure that this is not fantasy. Like this is a sci-fi picture. And I think the explanation she comes up with is just because you haven't heard of it before doesn't mean it's supernatural. It just means we haven't like figured it out yet. Right. That's kind of like one of the main core like theses of the film. One of the things I really question about it is like what makes this guy special. I don't know if you have any answers to that, but like this is very ordinary, bro. He's smart, but he's just kind of like a... They go out of their way to make sure you know this is like a regular guy. And his only thing that distinguishes him from the other American tourists is that he doesn't immediately sleep with her the way that she wants him to. Right. I mean, he, like, he, he tries to take her on a date. sensitive than them. But yeah. ultimately, I don't, that kind of worked for me. Because the whole film is sort of leading to, you know, she's about to go through this transformation and she explains, if I'm in love, you know, I have this oxytocin. And it will let my body know, like, I don't even consciously decide. And so they kind of spend this last night together waiting. Like, is she going to turn into monster or is her body going to tell her she's in love and they'll be together? And ultimately, like, I don't think whether he's interesting or not is very important. I think kind of the point of the film is like, you can't decide who you love. So like to us, this guy is like a normal bro. I didn't mind hanging out with him. Yeah, no, he's cool. Yeah. But I I don't know. Maybe they've had some great conversations that we just don't see on film. But I think ultimately the point is like she can't really consciously decide one way or another. Like love is just this kind of abstract thing that we can't even really. It's a chemical thing. A chemical thing that we can't explain or we can't explain through science. But it has this like intangible quality. And I think that's kind of what it's getting at. So his like. His personality or even their dynamic, like they seem like fine as a couple. Yeah. But will it last? I mean, they go into that in the movie too. Like she says, haven't you ever lusted after someone? And you know, how can you tell the difference between lust and love? Which is true. And that ties kind of into it as well. And that you know kind of saves the movie too, because if it was like her making a choice in this like sort of fairy tale way, like should I give up immortality for this like American bro, you know, right. like that'd be a different movie. But it's like her body just sort of like does what it does. And I, I do like the concept that her mother also had this like 
evolutionary thing. Mm-hmm. So basically, she is her mother's chromosomes, or like half of it. And if she stays with this guy, she's going to have a baby, and this creature is going to live on anyway. It's not like this chain will be broken. Uh, it's just a different way for this like very strange, peculiar, as far as we know, singular beast to like continue on. Right. Yeah, by giving up immortality, she's still just passing it along to someone else. Like it's kind of like a loss of like selfishness because she's like, why would I give up eternity for you? But then, you know, sometimes you have no choice. And I do think there's kind of a metaphor there with like having children, you know, kind of wanting to be free and live for yourself. And then you have kids, you kind of have to pass that along to them you can't live for yourself anymore so that there's kind of the whole parenthood thing in there tied with like what is true love and there's some really interesting kind of ideas in the movie but i think what anchored the movie for me was like the performances mm-hmm. even though he is like a, a dude bro and sh- they could have gone maybe more into her psyche too like because that's such an interesting character but I, I really felt like the performances were great and it kind of keeps the movie and this sort of like real world. I mean, she's almost like playing with her food. Like even though he's the one that's ostensibly on vacation, he's trying to set down roots and like establish this like family dynamic with her. And she's kind of not taking him seriously the whole time. And like just sort of frivolously having fun. Most of her problems are in taking these like, you know, elixirs that she's come up with. She shoots them like heroin to stop herself from turning into this like, confusing Lovecraftian beast. I think possession is a good uh, well, call to it. Especially that main scene, her big kind of like monster reveal where she, he comes in and she's writhing on the floor as this kind of like octopus monster. It's a thing. confusing mix of different mammals that do not go together and some reptiles. It's just like a yeah. really weird like gumbo of like evolutionary influences. Uh, and that's what she is. Uh, she just can usually take this like form of a hot Italian lady uh, in the meantime. And he, there's a scene where the guy asks her like, so what are you? Are you like vampire, werewolf, zombie? Just like goes <laughs> down the list. She's like, I'm all those things yeah. and more really. And she explains like uh, that, that might be where that quote came from earlier. Like if you can't explain it, it doesn't mean it's not, su- it doesn't mean it's supernatural. Yeah. Like basically like vampire was a word we came up with for people with this like blood deficiency. We didn't know about yet. And like, mm-hmm. you can explain what I am in some sort of like loose way, but the truth is we haven't fully understood it scientifically yet, and that'll come later if yeah. it ever comes. I don't know. I just really like the big ideas of this movie and like the sort of day to day like normal approach to it. And I think that anchor with that normal dude bro as like the protagonist does kind of help that a little bit. It keeps mm-hmm. it grounded, but at the same time, like. I know just like the idea of this like fertile time of like spring where things are like coming alive and like pregnancy is a big theme in the film. And there's like all this just like grubs and rotting animals and like the earth and just this old world setting. It's all just alive with like fresh regrowth and like the death that comes before that. I don't know. I just think it's really big ideas with this really like methodical, smart, like measured. Um, yeah. I mean, I approach. think that's definitely what the these two directors do like from seeing these three movies they've done. That's kind of like what they're so good at is taking lofty concepts, but still remaining grounded in some like human story. And yeah. And this was really nice to see 
then with uh, some really badass special effects and like really beautiful images of Italy, like I said, and it overall, yeah, it worked for me. I liked all three of these guys' movies. This, I would probably say was just as good as uh, The Endless, which I really, really loved. Yeah, I think it's more in line with that one than Resolution, which makes sense because mm-hmm. Resolution came first and they've sort of been working up to this like emotional version of that. Yeah, they've been adding like more humanism to their like ideas and the movies have been getting better since they started doing that. Yeah, no, and they're very exciting filmmakers. I'm kind of excited to see what they'll do in the future. Benson and Moorhead. <laughs> What a dynamic duo. It's, it's hard to remember their names. <laughs> it is, but they're awesome. Yeah. And this movie is good. Maybe people are setting off the plants? What are you saying? That guy was crazy. We have to save them. They're already dead. What if they're targeting us as threats? I mean, this part of the field may not have been set off. Something in this field could be releasing the chemical into the air when there's too many of us together. Let's just stay ahead of the wind. I think that you and I have both become bigger M. Night Shyamalan fans over the past few weeks. Well, I would say I've always been a fan. I think that I've, because it's been a while since I've seen some of his older movies, I've kind of forgotten how good they are. And now rewatching them, I'm like doubling down. I'm like, yeah, M. Night Shyamalan is the shit. And even when he misfires, it's even if it's spectacular, there's something interesting going on. See, and I missed a lot of his like classic movies. And that's what we're doing today is like when he first came up, like what were the movies that made him famous? All right. Uh, I missed a lot of these when they first came out. And this a lot of this is new to me, what we're talking about today. I came recently during that like Bloomhouse cycle of like the visit split and glass watching those in the theater. I enjoyed each one of those like immensely and just sort of like retroactively going back. I was like, wow, why did I overlook this ridiculous nerd? Well, I read an article <laughs> that I think they reference it like the Shyamalama Renaissance or something like, cause his past Shyamalanaissance. Shyamalanaissance. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it, yeah. He has had this like resurgence and I think, He's making some of the best work of his career. He just had this rough patch for a while, but I think the Bloomhouse model makes sense for him because what he does is he turns like modest budgets into huge box office hits. And like that's what is so great about him is that every movie he releases, it's so fucking ridiculous that like most professional critics get like flustered by how like nonsensical and like weird and just off-putting it is. All right. And, you know, give it like kind of middling to te- negative reviews. And then it makes so much fucking money that he gets to make another one. Yeah. And they just keep coming out. Well, So what's interesting about what you're saying, too, is when he is given a huge budget, which apparently he was for, I think, last Airbender, had a pretty high budget, but especially that Will Smith. After Earth. After Earth was the biggest budget he got. And that was his biggest box office failure and those are the two that neither of us have seen before right because everything i've read is like avoid these i'm gonna have to do that for an episode because i would like to do that for an episode i've not seen an m night Shyamalan movie i don't like so i feel like we have to like break that scene now i'm scared like i'll find one (laughs) yeah (laughs) don't but it's weird yeah you're right like that's kind of been his thing is like he does a lot with a little amount of money 
And I think that's where kind of his Spielberg influence comes in is not in the budget side, but like he has this ability to create huge like movie moments that feel like really big. They're like water cooler movies. Like there's people movies people talk about, you know? Yeah. And he can create those moments with like not a whole bunch of money. And that's like really impressive. And I find it funny when you can see him cutting corners, like when he shoots a scene that, you know, that obscures like the big CGI spectacle you would see in another movie. He just like turns the camera to the corner so you don't see it happen. Like I find if I, it's a little bit of audience trolling on top of like saving cash, and I find it like so funny every time it happens. I did notice that in in signs, like oh, how yeah. little the alien shown, and then when it finally is shown, you could tell like they didn't really have the money to make a yeah. convincing CGI. And it's a worldwide alien invasion that all takes place on like one farm. It's yeah. perfect. It's, yeah, it's like great. a little like. A Twilight Zone kind of episode. Anyway. So before we get into this in earnest, I want to ask you a question. This is like a theory I have. And I, okay. f- I think you might find this interesting. Yeah. So I think M. Night Shyamalan is the success story version of Richard Kelly. So like Richard Kelly comes out mm-hmm. with Donnie Darko and it's a movie that, you know, wasn't quite as successful as early Shyamalan pictures, but, you know, it was well loved and has like this like really strong the cult. cult class. Yeah. And as soon as he was told... He was a genius. Richard Kelly lost his goddamn fucking mind and made movies like The Box and Southland Tales. And they both flopped very hard and had a very slow cult building. It was an overwhelmingly negative response. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was a financial failure. Whereas M. Night Shyamalan has done kind of the same thing. He had The Sixth Sense in 1999 made like, I think it made... Huge six hundred million dollars on a forty million dollar budget. It was the second movie in the box office that year behind the Phantom Menace, which was like the first Star Wars movie in like decades. That that would, oh my god, yeah. And it got six Oscar nominations, <laughs> like just accolades and money thrown at this guy at his most restrained. And then in each subsequent movie. The true, like, preposterous nerd in him just emerged more and more and he more. He couldn't help himself. Until yeah. he was making shit like Glass and the Happening that are just, and Lady in the Water, which we talked about last episode, which are just completely fucking bug nuts, nerd fest, not cool movies at all. Like, very nerdy, uncool films. And yeah, I mean, you get what I'm getting at here? I do. Watching The Sixth Sense especially was like, and kind of watching, the, I watched them in order, mm-hmm. you know, and... With each subsequent one, it seemed like his true, like what he's really about, like kept coming more and more to the surface. I do feel like with movies like Lady in the Water and The Happening, it got a little, it basically got as like ridiculous it's silly. as it could get. He kind of had to rein it in just a little bit. It just took him some time to rein it in. And now I feel like he's figured out his little. Did you like, see Glass? I have not seen Glass. That yet. is like the happening shit right there. Like that is some ridiculous. I've heard the shit. like climax is like totally insane. It's so fun, but it's so so goofy and so nerdy. Like it, there's just nothing cool about it. It's just like geeky bullshit. And I just love that this geek keeps get, making money and like keeps getting made fun of, and it doesn't matter. Whereas like Richard Kelly, like his career went the other way. It kind of like tanked. Like, he hasn't made a movie in, like, you know, over a decade or whatever. But see, with Richard Kelly, like, if you go from Donnie Darko to... Um, the Box? It? Southland Tales? Southland Tales. That's a huge leap in stylistic... <laughs> like, that's a stylistic change 
on a whole nother scale. Like it seems like Shyamalan has kind of always known what his lane is and he swerved like a little outside of it or really stuck down the middle, but he knows what his thing is. Like he has a very distinct thing he's about. Whereas Richard Kelly feels like if you smoke too much weed and you got too many ideas in your head and you really don't know, yeah, like you're not grounded in any specific thing. But Shyamalan at his most ridiculous has that like, I want to call it the Cold Stone approach to filmmaking, where you just keep slapping more and more ideas into the thing until it just like makes no more sense. Like yeah. especially Lady in the Water, like the way that movie just keeps adding more and more wrinkles to the fairy tale it's telling, to the point where it's completely unrecognizable from the very simple version of the story it tells at the beginning. Like it's just maximalism in storytelling. Well, and what I mean, we'll get to. We'll probably like maybe rank them at least like talk about our favorites. But yeah. that, for me personally, that's why I feel like signs is kind of my favorite thing he's done because you can even tell now when he's piling on the humor and the B movie stuff, but it has what I always think his best movies do. Like it has something at its core that's real and emotional. I think where he starts to like go a little too outside of it is like the happening where it gets a little too silly and you don't really feel like these are human beings that have a personal like inner life. Yeah. It's completely disconnected from these earlier films, which are a little more emotionally grounded. And I think the sixth sense is obviously him on his best behavior. Yes. I I would say even in this one, he's not even quite doing his Spielberg shtick yet. He's like doing Hitchcock almost like the film has a sort of like noir lighting to it. Uh, it's very serious and like it treats its mystery as this like kind of spooky suspense story. It seems like dated in a like it seems like the kind of supernatural thriller you would see in like the 80s or like late 70s. Very 70s. It even has like a very strong tie to The Exorcist, right? Which, you know, in a lot of that movie and what people forget before like the actual exorcism is you know, the mother bringing her daughter over and over again to the doctors being like, what's wrong with her? And like sort of the horror of like medicine failing you and not being able to tell you what's wrong with your kid. Uh, Haley Joel Osment in this film obviously has something very wrong with him and no doctor or therapist can put a finger on it. It should go without saying that we have to spoil every movie we talk about today. If you somehow have made it (laughs) the last 20 years without being spoiled on the sixth sense, we will spoil it today. Uh, You know, Bruce Willis plays a child psychologist in the film. So one of the reasons he can hide in plain sight as a ghost is that he's part of this like medical community that's trying to diagnose this kid. Mm-hmm. And it seems like they've exhausted all their other options and we need to assign a doctor to follow this kid around and see him in his private moments. Mm-hmm. And then we'll get to the root of what's wrong with him. And the truth is the root of what's wrong with him is that ghosts are following him around and won't leave him alone. Yeah. <laughs> but Bruce Willis is like a cool ghost he's a kind ghost a kind ghost like a casper that grew up and got sad because his uh marriage can't continue but see it's funny you bring up the exorcist because i found this to be very similar in another way in that when people talk about the exorcist they usually talk about like linda blair and how great her performance was and you kind of focus on like the child actor and same thing in sixth sense Haley joe osmond who is great oh yeah and him and Bruce Willis, who I don't like Bruce Willis. I don't think he's that great of an actor. He's dead inside. <laughs> but sometimes that dead inside, that coldness, like it works in this movie. And it he, works here and it works in Unbreakable. 
in glass, it's a little distracting. It's like, are you even here? Like, right. <laughs> you just got this paycheck and yeah, was... slept walk through the film. But in this one, it, it, it works. And I do think his solemnness gives some gravity to like the kind of ridiculous nature of him and Haley Joe Osment. Like it's him and this kid talking about like how he sees ghosts, but he's so like grounded and kind of solid that it works like, and they bounce off each other really well. So I think it's easy to like focus on Haley Joe Osment, but I really think in the same way as the exorcist, like what keeps the movie really grounded is the mom, the mom. And it's the same in the exorcist. Like uh, I forget the actress's name. She doesn't get enough credit. And same in this one. Like Tony I don't Collette. remember how great Tony Collette is in this movie. And I think she is actually the like emotional center and watching it again, there's basically two climactic scenes with Haley Joe Osment and his mom in the car. I cried. And I cried like a baby yeah. <laughs> during that too. And then you have the, like the twist, mm-hmm. right? And I found myself being much more affected by that human story of in the car of like a guy that's in touch with his dead grandmother, comforting his mom and her like kind of breaking down that to me seemed like the real core of the film. The The twist is like a nice little addition, but people should not sleep on Tony Collette. I mean, she was movie. nominated for best lead actress at the Oscars that year. She was. For yeah. This, oh, okay. Okay. But I think as time has gone on, you kind of forgot that. It's just I like, didn't oh. know that she was in this. I mean, I mean, I saw this once in like 99 Same or 2000, here, yeah. like when it's on blockbuster. So just like, Oh yeah. Haley Joe Osment. Yeah. Know? And I've fallen in love with her, you know, since then, especially in like Muriel's Wedding and um, United States of Terra and I guess more recently in Hereditary, Hereditary too. Hereditary, she kind of does the same. But yeah, there's just this like emotional weight she brings to it. And it's the same thing as The Exorcist. It's this like woman who's at the end of her rope and like is out of facilities to take care of their child who has... But it's like trying their damn Some problem that's bigger than her, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the most effective scenes in that besides the car... Which, I mean, I'll talk about how much I love shit like The Happening later in the episode, but I didn't emotionally connect with any of these films. I found them so fun, but that car scene was like one of the most emotional. This one and Signs are the pretty much the only two that made me cry yeah. in his like catalog. The other scene I would point to is when she's doing laundry and Haley Josman's sitting in the kitchen and like the ghosts are kind of rattling the cabinets there's a really superb shot where he like lifts his hand from the table and you can see the sweat lines from his uh, palms evaporating on the table. That's just really good detailed filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, but there's just something about the like handheld camera that like follows her from the laundry room back to the kitchen where she's trying to take care of this kid and like keep this like household together. Mm-hmm. And then there's this like supernatural element that's just completely out of her hands. And I, I found the exasperation in that scene like just as effective as the car scene later. And I guess it's like little things like that that add up. Or like the other scene where, you know, ostensibly it's her and Bruce Willis sitting in a chair, you know, quietly contemplating this poor kid. Uh, But really, it's just her staring at nothing. She's like so fucking done. She just has nothing left in her body. So that's another thing we have to talk about because it's what most people talk about with Shyamalan is the twist. Mm -hmm. And what I found watching these again, because, you know, after you've seen it, you know, the twist, the twists at work. When you watch it a second time, it adds a richness. The movie's better. It's better. It adds more to the story. And scenes like that, or scenes with Bruce Willis and his wife, where she's just kind of despondently looking through him, 
on their anniversary, you know, at the dinner table, it adds more like emotional weight when you see it a second time. When it doesn't work, and we'll talk about the village later, it's like watching the village a second time, it sucks all the the life and the tension out of the film. That's I can disagree my- with that because I already knew the twist of the village going in that I'd never seen it before. Mm-hmm. I had a different experience with it. But yeah, as a general rule, I think that's when a twist is effective. And I think honestly, most of his twists work for me. And I'd say the one cheat to the sixth sense, the thing I, if I like prick a, a little continuity problem, no, no, I have no problems with, I, I'm not, I'm never going to be the continuity guy. Like I do not care about continuity. Okay. Don't care at all. <laughs> It's more when they do the twist at the end, it's not allowing you to think back and rewatch the film. They show this like quick montage of like all the moments where you should have gotten it. And that's how the reveal like floods back in. Yeah. It's like, oh, let's remember these like quick moments. Uh, and it like re-shows you in this like highlight reel. Signs kind of does the same yeah, thing too. That's a little cheap. And if I had to excuse that, it's because this is a populist filmmaker. This is not a guy who's making art house films. He's making movies that people can talk about at the water cooler that you and your well, coworkers that's where the can Spielberg discuss. Thing comes in exactly. Like, so if you're a populist filmmaker, you kind of do have to spell it out a little bit. And I do think that that's a good transition into Signs from 2002. We already did Unbreakable in the last episode, which was between these two films. But I think Signs is him doing a Spielberg impersonation at full length. And it works. It's a so cover well song. It's great. Yeah. The only unfortunate thing is that you have to watch Mel Gibson for two hours. And in 2019, oh, that doesn't feel so good. No, I don't <laughs> look, I put all that aside. I, he's so good in this movie. I, I know he's like a pretty shitty racist person. I try to put asshole. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I, I try to put that aside and watching this, it's dude, a good performance. It's a really good performance. It's, one of his best Joaquin Phoenix, the kids it's so well acted. It's so well written. One of the kids is Rory Culkin who actually he's like 40 years old, even though he's like nine. He's so wise. <laughs> he's wise beyond his years to like an absurd level. Cause he's like the information dump character, oh, yeah. you know, the cinematography is gorgeous in this film. The performances are all good, but I think this, the, the goofiness starts to creep in a little more than maybe what you saw in the last two pictures. It's like oh, even yeah. in Unbreakable, that movie, it's about superheroes, but it's like the most like grim, straightforward superhero tale. Well, rewatching that one, even though I know you and Brittany did that one, but rewatching that one, uh, it seemed like a precursor to those like Christopher Nolan Batman movies, like For taking sure. a superhero thing and making it as like solemn and dreary as possible. I don't know if he was an inspiration, but he definitely started that trend. And I think what pops up in signs that you don't get in those first two films, I'm saying first two, he did make movies before this trilogy, but really but we're the, not going to talk about the Rosie O'Donnell. Uh, and he had like a movie that was only shown like in a like a student film, student film. Yeah. But this, yeah. For all states of there's all, Canon. Yeah. This yeah, is, yeah, we're talking about Canon. canon. <laughs> the thing that shows up for the first time in signs is what I really like about him is that I cannot put a finger on when he's intentionally being funny and when he's not. I think that turns a lot of people off because it feels like he doesn't have like control of his tone, which is very important. Like That's what a director's supposed to do is feel in control of the tone of the picture. In his case, I cannot tell when he's being intentionally funny. 
and it doesn't matter. Like I, I have so much fun with the goofiness, whether or not I know if it's on purpose. And the frustrating part of that is that you know that some of it is definitely on purpose. Like there's yeah. like straight up jokes and signs, uh, and they're funny. Too. And they're funny. Yeah. I mean, then there's other scenes that are like you know funny in this like Nick Cage kind of way, where like the motions of it are heightened. But there's also like this kind of like genuine core to it. It's little stuff too. It's such good filmmaking. It's like. You know, the kids are wearing a tinfoil hat. And then there's a scene where, like, Joaquin Phoenix is finally bought into the conspiracy. And Mel Gibson walks in and he's wearing the tinfoil hat. And they're just sitting there on the couch. And it's such a funny image. There's no way that's not a straight up joke. Like, that's a visual gag. And then that makes you question what other things in the movie are also supposed to be funny. And it starts to, like, it's a very weird gray area that I do not have the answer key to. And that's what makes it. So good is like it might go between those different tones and you don't quite know what his intent is, but regardless, it works like the emotional moments, whether it's like Mel Gibson holding his son that's going through an asthma attack or there's that great dinner table scene. You know, that's the really hard one to tell, like. So it starts off almost like this Nick Cage freak out like joke. And yeah, then I'm turns- going to eat everything on the table. And then he starts sobbing as he's eating and then he it hits you. So it hits you and he's like holding his children. But then there's a quick funny shot where he grabs Joaquin Phoenix. You just see his hand come out the frame. And he grabs him like, come in. You got to get in on this hug. And it's like kind of funny again, but it does it all successfully. So the fun, like the absurd funny and then the really sentimental moments and it all works. And that's really, I feel like that's pretty hard to pull off. Yeah. I, well, okay. Quick rundown of the movie. Like, yeah. Emil Gibson is this like Americana guy. He is a former preacher, like almost like American Gothic kind of guy. He like, he's like this former religious guy that now is a farmer and doesn't want anyone to call him father. Cause his wife died and he's sort of blamed God on her passing or at least has like given up on God's existence because of her passing. Well, and it is kind of telling the uh, kind of standard crisis of faith story that, you know, we've seen in tons of other movies, but when you throw in aliens to the mix, so it's taking this like B movie thing with this, like there's tons of like seven seal or what was that? Scorsese silence, silence, like taking these crisis of faith, which can be really heavy Thing, and, but it's through this filter of like a Saturday night, like midnight B movie. And what's interesting is that the movie never, or at least early on, establishes that the aliens are definitely real. There's like no twist that the aliens arriving on Earth aren't real. It, it, it starts off with them finding like crop circles in their little farm. Uh, and it's like, okay, maybe someone did that as a hoax. Mm-hmm. But it, it soon evolves to like there's like news reports from around the world that they're watching on TV, which is a very cheap way to stage a worldwide alien invasion. And does fit into that 50s B-movie vibe. Like, right. news broadcasts are a good way to, like, make it seem like something's happening way off screen. Once you start seeing the aliens and, like, home footage from around the world, it's like, okay, these are definitely real aliens. So where's the twist coming in? And what he builds the movie off of is these, like, questions of faith. And what I find interesting here, like, Shyamalan was raised Hindu and then sometime in his youth converted to Christianity. And I feel like he makes Christian films. Like yep. his, his student film we're not talking about is called Praying with Anger, and it's about like this like Christian guy. Uh, he's basically playing him, himself going through this like crisis of faith as a as a teenager, I, I believe. 
and in a lot of these movies, there's a lot of Christian iconography that comes up. Even in the sixth sense, there's a lot of Catholic like cathedral imagery. Yeah. And in this one, what I like about it is that the movie doesn't really definitively come down either way. Uh, and it, it asks a lot of questions about faith though. There are all these things that happen in the world and these like coincidences that right. save the day. You either believe they're coincidences or they're miracles. And the, the twist of the film, quote unquote, and like the, the classic Shyamalan twist is watching these miracles or coincidences come together to save the day when the family is locked in their living room with an alien. And I think it's like taken by themselves. Each one of those coincidences could be seen as just that. But together, it does seem like a miraculous thing for everything to like come in at that exact moment. So the twist isn't really a twist at all. It's just building on the themes of the movie, but I do think that's an interesting point. I even thought about that during unbreakable cause it's kind of a Jesus parable. It's like a man realizing that he is this like invincible savior in a way. And you can kind of pick up on that on a lot of his movies, maybe not all of them, but yeah, I definitely think his like spirituality comes through in a lot of his films. But I think it says a lot that, you and I can still watch them. I think we're pretty annoying atheists in like a general sense. Like we're pretty, or at the very least agnostics. Like I don't like Christian movies generally, unless it's something like Scorsese's silence. Like we were talking about earlier, but see, this felt like a nice counterpoint to, again, to bring up like uh, something like the seven seal or Mm -hmm. where it, it seems like a movie about a crisis of faith. That's made by an agnostic or atheist person or someone that is kind of undecided, they're personally questioning more, their More faith. questions than answers, I think, is what it offers. But I do get the sense, and I also know because Shyamalan wanted to direct Life of Pi, apparently, which is like... I've never seen that. Is that but, Ang Lee? Yeah, Ang Lee ended up directing it. But you know the general story. It is like a Christian parable. Okay. So he definitely seems like he lands more on the... He's actually like a religious person that's like solid in their faith and it's kind of refreshing a little bit to see someone that is a Christian to make a movie about a crisis of faith that doesn't feel like God's not dead or left behind or something where it's like those movies are all answers and no questions like to ask the question is a sin in those films and this the whole point is like you know staying open to the possibility of you know there being something more out there but it does side more on the there are miracles. There is like a higher purpose. I don't know. I think you could read it either way, to be honest, especially yeah. like the way that they interpret the signs that God is supposedly giving them. You know, they're very disconnected things like Joaquin Phoenix's old baseball career, uh, something Bill Gibson's wife babbled to him while she was dying and like losing well, blood. And he even says on that scene, oh, it was just her n- neurons firing and she was just going to this random memory. The daughter has this like phobia of water uh, where she'll like leave half drank water glasses all around the house because she like senses something wrong with the water. And the aliens, you know, surprise, are like deathly well, allergic to water. And for- then also like the aliens use this toxic gas and his son has asthma. So when the alien finally attacks the son, like, Oh, you know, his lungs were closed. He didn't get any of the gas. So it's all these things together. I mean, I I feel like that's the most important piece of dialogue in the whole movie is between Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix, where he's talking about like 
yeah, you either see miracles or you see coincidences. And in the end, it's kind of up to you as the viewer. Did you just see a miracle or was it really just some very lucky coincidences? It, what's that like uh, Jim Carrey movie about numerology? What, number 23? Yeah, yeah. Like the way that humans are like predisposed to finding patterns and things. That's like something we love to do. So like for him to s- decipher the patterns of like everything aligning in that final scene for them to like conquer this alien that's attacked them in their home, that could be God steering him in some direction to save them in that one moment. Or it could be him just finding these like patterns in life and like just sort of like bringing it all together at the right moment. Well, and maybe that's the point is like you have to find meaning in your life somehow and people that find miracles and random patterns like if it helped rejuvenate his sense of faith and it was good and meaningful to him you know i don't know it does leave it open to interpretation a little bit and the next film the village from 2004 i think this is where he starts to go full goof like in signs he's doing that like spielberg thing with like the lens flares and the kids with the flashlights in the woods and that like sort of you know earnest uh sci-fi like eyes wide open to the world and like looking mm-hmm. for God's influence and coincidences in uh, the village is very much predicated on this giant twist that comes like three quarters into the film. And then also the trip to that twist, I think is like the exact moment you can pinpoint when M night Shyamalan fully came out as a nerdy goofball. I think the first part of this movie feels like him and his like signs like sixth sense kind of mode and then there's this trip into the woods to like find the twist where the film like finally like it's him like revealing his true colors as like this goofball nerd does that make any sense i mean it it does but i feel like i don't know i'm picking up that you're maybe a little more high on this movie than i was because i absolutely hate I hated this movie. Oh, you hate it. I hate it. I just don't see how he can make signs <laughs> and get so much right and then make the village. And it's like he didn't learn anything about why signs was successful. I would say the first glaring thing watching this again is like it's humorless. Oh, I don't know about that. Oh, dude, it's a dirge. It's no fun. I really I would love to hear what was funny. In this movie, oh. too. Besides Adrian Brody. What just... about Bryce Dallas Howard? Those two performances are silly as fuck. I don't know if it's intentionally silly, but I'll, okay, I'll get into oh, what's man. fun about this film. So, like, the first half of it is sort of like Shyamalan doing his normal thing. I, th- I think maybe that's where you're saying it's humorless. It's like this village of people in the 1800s. Oh, and, they're, and the way they talk, it's so annoying, and they're like this puritanical Amish... People and they talk very stiffly and the script in signs was so tight and every piece of dialogue was either funny or it led the plot somewhere. It added characterization. This movie is just a lot of fluff, just a lot of unnecessary bloated like screenwriting and like too many characters, if nothing else, way too many characters, too much dialogue. I mean, in this film, you have Joaquin Phoenix, Bryce Dallas Howard, Jesse Eisenberg, Sigourney Weaver, Adrian Brody, William Hurt, Judy Greer, Michael Pitt. Stop. Such a long cast list. (laughs) Signs. You you have what? Four characters. Yeah. That's it. And you really get to know them. You you forgot the most important character, uh, the vet that killed his wife. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Played by M. Night, M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> I like his cameo in The Village, by the way. He's just oh, like it's great. in the reflection. Yeah, we need to do a whole segment of just his cameos. Yeah, uh, his Hitchcock influence. But anyway. So, yeah, you have this like vegetarian cult that lives in this like 1800s, almost like The Witch, like this like secluded, overly religious, protective village. And they're protective because there's this creature in the woods uh, that looks like this giant hedgehog in like a Handmaid's Tale um, outfit. Creature design is great, by the way. I'll concede that. I like it as well. And Joaquin Phoenix gets injured in the film, and one of the villagers has to go out into the woods to a neighboring village to get medicine for his wounds and then come back with the medicine to fix him. The elders of the village are uh, really weary of letting her do this because... It's the modern world, <laughs> and we're not supposed to. Know, they're not supposed to know that you know out there are like cars and like modern technology and stuff. Because sometime in the seventies, uh, this like group of people decided to like stage an eighteen hundreds village because one of them's a historian. <laughs> well, no, no, but also they they met in like a Crime social trauma. well social group for like people that went through trauma. So one woman's talking about how I think her sister was like raped and murdered in an alley. Another guy's father got shot in the head while he was sleeping. So all these people that went through trauma decided to get together and create a community out like in the woods on this nature preserve to protect this kind of simpler idyllic form of life. It's almost like this MAGA fantasy too. Cause it's a very white village. Yeah. With you like wall. The big thing is like walls around. <laughs> and there's a guy's hired to like patrol the walls and there's not a single ethnic person in the entire movie except for m night Shyamalan at the end well okay yeah and we're gonna yeah. go back to the old ways when things were better simpler times it's like Ugh, i don't that hasn't aged well um yeah but i feel like the first half especially when you have this like creature feature influence of like these creatures that stalk the woods it's kind of genuinely creepy it is yeah and i think even knowing the twist going in because you know i'd been spoiled on all these films before i ever saw them I still had a doubt in my mind. Like I knew it was in the modern world, but the movie still kept me guessing as to whether or not the hedgehog creatures were real. And like, there's a reveal partway into the film where William Hurt's like, look, we staged these monster attacks. These are not real. This is how we keep you in the village. And then there's another one that happens after that, that felt like so far outside of the like villagers control that like, I believed again. I was like, oh no, there actually is one that they based this off of at some point. Oh, but you know who it was? I didn't, know, whole it. I didn't know who it was. You didn't? No, it caught me off guard. Really? Yeah. Oh, I mean, you had seen this before too, so. Well, I know, but just, I mean, that that brings me to another thing I hated about it. It's like, yeah, this village of people that are all like getting along and it's so friendly and peaceful. And then there's one mentally challenged guy played by Adrian Brody that causes all the ruckus and he, He's stabbing people. He's running around like a farce, just maniacally. Like, it's so cringeworthy. He's the village idiot from like, like literally. I hate, it's like, you could have a much more interesting story where why not have a regular non-mentally challenged villager get jealous of Ivy with her love and decide to stab him. But instead it's like the crazed Village idiot. It's such like a cop out. And I think this movie, I think where the camp comes in is how bad that performance is. And also how bad Bryce Dallas Howard is in this film. And I don't like her as an actress. I think she's terrible. 
like Jurassic World, Lady in the Water. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can name any other films, but like she's always goofily bad, but in a way that I find funny. Like I found her inhuman performance in Jurassic World hilarious, and in this film, if you ask me like why I think the village is fun, it's because her blindly stumbling through the woods <laughs> well, yeah, and like a we frantic, to... melodramatic, oh, like almost like she's like doing Kate Bush interpretive dance, like through the woods, trying to feel the branches to safety. Yeah. Uh, it's so over the top. That's and not so how blind silly. people run. Blind people don't run like that. There's nothing real about it. Like it's so heightened and cartoonish that I couldn't help but laugh. But see, okay, here's the thing though. I think you were laughing at it cause it is funny, but I don't think like we were talking about some of his other movies, like the happening for instance, where the humor is intentional. It's so bad. Oh, that's, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. You're supposed to laugh. This I think is actually bad and you're not supposed to laugh. I can't you're call su- it. I can't really. No, not after the happening. See, I can't my, call it. My general sense is like, this was supposed to be taken very seriously and it totally bombed on every level. And you're not supposed to, because it's so, again, it's such a dirge. It's so unfun. I don't the think it's thing. that different than the happening. No, no, the that, happening the part, is fun. No, it's like a it's like a seventies throwback schlock premise, and like her stumbling through the woods feels like an over the top, outdated horror performance. And I cannot. It's not that I'm saying you're wrong. It's that I cannot definitively say that you are right or right. wrong. Well, and that and that, that makes gray it area is yeah. interesting to me. I don't want to fight too hard too because I will say this is my least favorite movie out of the ones. I I put this in like Lady in the Water as like three star, you know, enjoyed watching it, not going to come back to it. Okay, so I do want to not completely shit on this movie because there were a couple things that I really liked. I thought it was visually one of his most beautiful shot by Oscar award-winning Roger Deakins who just won for Blade Runner or whatever a yeah, years ago. I thought cinematography beautiful, the score these like sweeping violins, beautiful. So it had that going for it. It's like his best looking sounding movie, but his weakest is definitely his weakest script by far. The, like if you were to read this script and how there's so many stupid monologues and the way they talk, it's so annoying and it's so unnecessary. And why do they talk like that? Like they were normal Americans, like living in the outside world in the seventies. And they, they decided to adopt these like British or I don't know. If you think about it, though, it's like accent, one but... guy was like a, like a historian at like a college professor. And like yeah. all these other people are basing this like village off of his ideal. So it makes sense that it's not quite right. Like they get it inaccurate, <laughs> you know? And the accents are like kind of yeah, off. Yeah. Like the, he bequeathed, uh, it's just yeah, a little it's off. So, oh. But I just can't discount the possibility that the camp was somewhat intentional. Mm-hmm considering that the next two films were Lady in the Water and The Happening, where it's so over the top that the possibility that he wanted you to take it 100% like seriously is just impossible. Yeah. So I feel like there's definitely a turn here, though. Like mm-hmm. The early part of the village where it's all self-contained in the village and there's like a hedgehog creature feature thing, that feels like Shyamalan before this film. And then the blind stumbling from the woods into the real modern world feels like a whole new Shyamalan that's like out of the bag and we have not been able to put him back in the bag see, ever since. But see the one the one part where I thought it was going more to the campy 
side of things was when she finally gets over the wall and they have these <laughs> scenes with her and Kevin, the like park ranger. It's goofy. It's goofy. And that was really fun. And it, I kind of wanted to see more of that. Like I wish that was a setup to a sitcom or something where she's just totally bewildered and stuck in her 1890s ways, like interacting with this guy from the you know modern that's era. why i can't it's hilarious. say it's humorless like it ends on a joke like after it that struggle end on, ends yeah. on a joke so it's hard to like say for sure what's a joke and what's not in the but rest for of the me film. it was like 90 percent very serious failure and then a little bit of that jokiness like sprinkled in at the end but not enough to like for me to get any enjoyment out of this picture besides like i said the the score and the visuals and then by the time you roll into the happening, which was in 2008, I mean, as many questions as you might have about like what's funny in the village and what's funny in signs and what's supposed to be serious. I've realized a lot of people didn't feel this way when the happening first came out, but watching it in like 2019, there's no, this is the first time I've ever seen this film. There's no question in my mind. This movie is a fucking joke. Like it's a straight up <laughs> legitimate joke that he tells. And it's so funny. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's where I misjudged it is I took it way too seriously when I first saw it. And I was like, this movie is bad. And then watching it again recently, I was like, it's supposed to be bad. It's supposed to be bad in the way that like the blob is bad. It feels like a 50s throwback. throwback. And I don't know if like Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel are in on the joke because I remember reading something that Mark Wahlberg hated this movie and how it turned out, like, I guess he wasn't, in a, but how couldn't you be? Like, they use him exceedingly well in the film. Yeah, it's it's so over the top. It's so much fun. It also reminds me of, like, 70s exploitation films, like Larry Cohen's, like, God Told Me To. And, like, I don't know, I guess Final Destination from the early 2000s. Uh-huh. How it's, like, this intangible threat that, like, makes people crazy. So the movie's, like... It, it could have been called The Wind. It could have been like a horror film called The Wind. Right. Because uh, the threat of the film is this wind that blows through and then causes mass suicide. And it's basically like the plants are... It's like this eco-horror where... And it's got this environmentalist angle where we've done so much damage to the earth and now the earth is fighting back. Yeah, and the uh, plants are fighting overpopulation. Like anytime too many people gather in one spot... And there's a lot of plants around. The plants release a toxin that causes us to kill ourselves. I think my criticism of the movie when I first watched it years ago was like, this movie's so stupid. They're just running away from the wind. <laughs> like, how could that? How, that's not a horror movie. Like, that's dumb. And now watching it a little older. I'm oh, like, it's so this dumb. Is great. It's so <laughs> dumb. It's so funny. And there's a lot of funny. I mean, come on, you have Mark Wahlberg talking to a fake plant. Uh, yeah, got, he negotiates humanity's surrender to a fake plant. <laughs> you can go on. There's a lot of... He gives this like really serious speech about how um, all they need to do to survive is just stay ahead of the wind. That makes no fucking sense. Have you ever tried to outrun wind? Yeah. Like, what do you even do about One that? One is character, too. Like, I remember reading somewhere where he picked this role because, like, oh, when am I ever going to get offered the role of a science teacher? So he took it, but it's so he doesn't fit the character at all. And he's talking about the scientific method and like, it's just t totally ridiculous and it doesn't actually work at all. It reminds me of his mode in Huckabee's, like how he's sort of like this confused dog. You know, that like, 
head tilt that dogs do when they're like trying to like understand what you're doing. They just yeah. kind of tilt their head sideways. He's like really enthusiastic but confused throughout the entire film. He's got this yeah. like really sweet, earnest demeanor, but he's kind of a dumbass. Uh, <laughs> right. And doesn't quite understand well, what's happening. Well, that's so funny. He's like a science teacher that has no fucking clue what he's doing. <laughs> and he may or may not be leading these other people into their death. But And I think the difference between him and Zoe Deschanel, like he's giving this over-the-top performance. She's playing the same kind of like, I don't know, sexy baby, you know. That she always She always plays, plays yeah. yeah. Which I, I never particularly liked her. In those roles, I, I think in this, what makes it funny is the editing. She gives these sort of like confused, whimsical responses to things people are saying. She like shrugs and like makes faces that are edited as reaction shots that do not match up with her face at all. Like she yeah. gives these like confusing, out of sync reactions to other people's feedback that it feels like the move, like Shyamalan and the editor trying to create this like 70s schlock vibe like it feels like it's like a b like a roger corman production that was like filmed in a weekend yeah and their their relationship too i thought was so funny like i can't think of a movie where the two like leads had less real chemistry like they don't feel like they're actually in any sort of relationship like what's the drama like she she had a tiramisu with, tiramisu with a co-worker and that's their big like drama well, I mean, to be fair, that tiramisu is mentioned in five different scenes throughout the picture. <laughs> She's like hiding text messages from him about the, like going out to get dessert. And it's just. And there's other things like that, too, that are just like weird fixations. Like this, there's this character that keeps wanting to make everyone hot dogs. Yeah. Like, how, how could you take this movie seriously and say it's a bad movie that's trying to be good? When there's a character who just wants to make everyone hot dogs and all he talks about is hot dogs, then it's like so straight out of the kind of schlock we watch. I think almost like Ed Wood kind of like uh, film where like there's one people have like one characteristic they just like hammer it over and over mm -hmm. and over again. That's their sole function. But I almost feel like maybe people took it too seriously because it does have this environmentalist angle. So it's like, oh, it's an issue film. It has to be taken seriously where I think you can have your cake and eat it too. Like. It's, you know, saying something about the environment and global warming and we fucked up the planet, but it's having like a good time doing it. You know, you don't have to take it at, at face value. It's it's very silly and fun. And you know what else I think saves it, too, is not only just like having, having an issue at the center of it. It's also the fact that this is the most violent M. Night Shyamalan movie, maybe maybe besides Split. Split's pretty gross. But like and no, this is even more like actually the only scenes that really <laughs> stuck with me seeing it like years, probably seven or eight years ago was like the lawnmower scene where dude gets run over by an industrial strength lawnmower. You have construction workers jumping to their death and blood building. spurting out of their heads. What's it's not like the dead bodies like splat and that's it. There's like an aftermath where like there's corpses everywhere and like just blood spurting out of like dead dogs and dead people. Well, and blood spurting, you see like a child get their brains blown out. That's what I wanted to get to. That is, you don't see that in many movies. We like talk about that a lot. Murders. Like people shy away from killing children. This man, this is his first R-rated picture and that's the first place he goes. Like, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to make an R-rated movie. How do I get edgier? I'm going to shoot two children in the face with a shotgun. 
Yeah. Oh my God. So we were talking before about contrasting tonalities. So this one has that too, where it, it strikes this like B movie tongue in cheek thing while also being aggressively violent. And it, it wavers between them like it's fascinating. At will, and it's, I don't want to say he like a hundred percent is successful, but he pulls it off better than he should have been able to, to go from ultra violence to just funny humor. And I think that comes out of him not having the heart for that. I watched this like DVD extra that came with it where they were shooting the scene where the two kids get their heads blown off by a shotgun, mm-hmm. which is even more of like a shocking moment because it has nothing to do with the suicide epidemic. Like it's like this unrelated thing that just stems from society breaking down, which I'm glad you brought that up as like a kind of aside. It's another thing I sort of noticed in his movies watching again. Like it's the same in the village where a community is trying to be insular and protect people from the dangerous, like urban modern society. But then they have to deal with the same forces of nature, just human evil. Are you saying that humans are the real monsters, James? I think that's what I'm getting at. (laughs) (laughs) And that the happening too, it's like they have to run away from the cities over in this idyllic countryside. And then you have like crazy people cooped up in their houses that are shooting children in the head. Yeah. So there's other um, films of his where I've caught similar themes. So that would like the religious aspects too. Like he has these like themes that kind of flow through a lot of his movies that I think. Oh, he, he's an great- auteur. He has like preoccupations and like aesthetic touches that. Yeah. It's, it's not like he's just this journeyman director. He writes and directs this stuff and like, I don't know. You know, and that, I know you're a fan of like William Freakin too. And there's directors like that where they are journeymen. They'll basically take whatever they can get and they make a, great movies. And you start to look for things like with Freakin. Like you're like, oh, what connects these things? Is it like his brutality? Is it like, and, and it's it's very loose. You know? It's really just like this is the job that I have. It's like the characters and signs are like trying to find a pattern and like something that's ultimately kind of meaningless, but. But with Shyamalan and other directors like him, mm-hmm. you do pick up on like overarching themes, which is important for somebody who you know is like we were saying earlier, very associated with like as a Spielberg devotee or you know he could easily be. I think De Palma had the same problem where everyone just saw him as like a Hitchcock ripoff, and then like over time you're like, no, he has his own preoccupations that have nothing to do with Hitchcock, even though he's yeah, like a big totally. fan. But anyway, so the scene where they're shooting the mm-hmm. uh, shotgun murders. The funniest thing to me, and this is like really helped confirm my like just labeling of him as like a huge nerd. He says like, no one would have expected this from me. I'm Mr. PG and this is me going hard R. (laughs) (laughs) And there's just something about the phrase like Mr. PG that like really tipped me off. And I think there's, that's where his heart is. Like he is a goofy cornball nerd of a man. And this is him like imitating these like more heartless, less humanist but you he know, doesn't really have the heart for it. Yeah, so he's imitating it, and by doing that, he sort of crosses a line. Like, that dual murder of those two children crosses a line <laughs> most, like, you know, hard-R people normally wouldn't do. Yeah. But Mr. PG trying to play with the rough kids, like, goes overboard, and, like, it really caught me off guard and shocked me. And that's when I became a fan of the film. Like, I was already having fun with it and, like, sort of, like, going along and laughing and stuff. But after that happened, I was just like so in his hands. Like he could have yeah. done anything after that, and I would have still been a fan. Well, and 
I was thinking about that during Signs, where there's a scene where Joaquin Phoenix is explaining, like, oh, it's just a hoax. You, you know these nerds. He like, goes on this <laughs> rant about nerds, and like they can't get girlfriends, and they're sad. They don't have girlfriends, and so they create these elaborate things. And I did feel like that was a little bit of Shyamalan kind of shining the light on himself. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a nerd, and I never got the girls, and... I don't know. I felt like that was a little bit of self-reflection. I feel like he's you know? our nerd, you know? <laughs> I've adopted this nerd. Okay, one thing that is very nerdy of him that I feel like we need to talk about as like a grander arc and might be missing from the happening is his cameos. In The Sixth Sense, he shows up as this doctor that's like one of the people seeing Haley Joel Osment try to diagnose him. In Signs, he has a little more of a... Uh, a little more Probably of a, the most substantial role, I guess, besides um, Lady, in the, Lady Water, in the Water, where he plays the most important writer in the history of all I time. I hate it, but I hate it. Oh, that. I love that. Oh, wow. That is so good. The most important writer of all time, and the villain of the movie is a movie critic that gets torn apart by the monster after explaining to the oh, audience God. that he is a terrible person and deserves to die. Oh, it's so good. I'm, I won't get into Lady in the Water with you because I really hate that movie. I really do. <laughs> I, I don't know. Oh, and then the village, he has a cameo. It's a little obscured. You don't park really see his face. Guy, but you see his reflection. Yeah, it's a little, it's not really there. And in this film, I feel like I spotted him in the park in the first scene, but it was very yeah. quick. Yeah, that it was, was him. him. Mm-hmm. It was, it's like a flash. But it's weird. Why is it either like all or nothing? It's either like just his reflection in a mirror, he gets one line, or he's like a major role in the thing. Maybe it started in the early films like, Oh, I'm going to do this Hitchcock sort of nod where like I walk through the frame and it's like, Oh, that's the director. And then by the time lady in the water came around and he like made himself the most important writer in the history of all time. Uh, yeah. and he got called out for that. Uh, maybe he like scaled back for this next one, but in glass, he has a whole scene dedicated to this arc that his cameos have had in the like really oh my god i laughed so hard in the theater okay don't don't spoil it for me because i still haven't seen it i was the only person laughing in a packed movie theater and i don't care like i'm glad i got that enjoyment (laughs) out of it it's this completely unnecessary scene as as if anyone could fucking care about his cameos (laughs) but he cares so much and i feel like that leans into the like the nerdy factor of his like oeuvre yeah well Honestly, if you're going to do a cameo and pretend like it's just this aside, I mean, really, Hitchcock, I feel like... He, he owns that. He owns it. He knows he's like a very important director, and by him making this little cameo, it's taking a little bit of the spotlight on himself. So, yeah, I could see Shyamalan in like Lady in the Water just kind of owning it and like, see, I'm this auteur. I'm the most important filmmaker on the planet. And... You know, I think at some point he might have even had that delusion, like when The Sixth Sense came out and he got all those like Oscars and all that money. I feel like he maybe did have that like, I am so smart and so cool that I could do no wrong. But I think by the time he made The Happening, he really didn't know like, okay, I'm I'm a prankster and I'm like, but see, I feel like he knew he knew himself and then he got thrown a bunch of money for these big budget movies that tanked. And then he kind of had like almost a question of faith in himself. in himself. Like, wait, who am I really? What do I stand for? And I feel like movies like The Visit 
and Split and even The Devil, which he didn't direct, but he produced. That's like, a fun movie. Yeah, he's getting back to his roots, and now like he knows who he is. I think what I really like about him is uh, when he's like fully committed to either way. My favorite movies from him today that we talked about were The Sixth Sense and The Happening, which could not be more different. And like in The Sixth Sense, I got this like really strong emotional reaction to it, and I was like really into the craft of it. And then in The Happening, it's just full goofball nerdery, just him like completely like lost his goddamn mind and just giving into like his most idiotic impulses. <laughs> right. And you know the signs and the village sort of float somewhere in between. And I do like those movies, but I could gush about the extremes of his work in the sixth sense on the happening like for, you know, hours. I agree, except I would agree about the happening on the one side of the coin, the other side, like I think signs for me of all of his work is his masterpiece for me. But yeah, I mean, that's just like nitpicking. I think overall, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to rank. Shyamalan films. I mean, I think Signs my favorite, and then probably Split and Sixth Sense. I'd put in that upper tier. You know, there's that upper tier, and then there's like this like middle tier, like The Happening, and oh, I don't know what Unbreakable. Obviously, I would say Sixth Sense, The Happening, and Split are my favorite three. So okay, so you're maybe not Split's that, the common denominator. Not that there. high on. Uh, I like Signs. I thought it was good. I I thought it was a good Spielberg impersonation that like at some points like really turned into full Shyamalan. There's that really brilliant scene we didn't talk about where Mel Gibson is looking at the alien in the knife under the uh, Mm -hmm. thing. And that's another good thing he does is obscuring in that way. Like we talked about him obscuring what you're seeing in a sense of saving money. But another thing he does is he builds suspense and not letting you see stuff and fucking with you about that. So, like, in Signs, I think that's one of those brilliant scenes in any of these films is we're at this children's birthday party uh, on the local news channel. And the kids are all looking at the alien outside the window. And the camera is over their shoulders trying to peer, like, sort of trying to look over them as if they're at a concert and, like, the stage is Mm -hmm. obscured. And that builds up so much tension where you're literally leaning forward and you're seated at home like, move the fuck out of the way. I want to see what's happening. (laughs) Well, And And he does that a lot. In that same way, too, his use of uh, silence and signs is another example. Like, the score is so great, but then the moments where the score drops out and it's just quiet, like when they're in the cellar or um, that scene where he's, like, confronting the alien in the pantry. Like, the score just drops out. And I don't know where he got that from... I don't know if that's Spielberg thing necessarily, but anyway. And, and I, will, I will admit too, I saw Signs last. So like I saw all of these Shyamalan movies for weeks and that was the very last one I watched. I did enjoy it, but maybe, you know, maybe that dulled a little bit of like, it's like stronger influences. I, uh, I just think I'm picking up on like the extremes. Like I feel like yeah, yeah. Split is the most extreme example of uh of his like Bloomhouse era, Sixth Sense is Definitely. like the most extreme example of like early era where he still wants to be taken somewhat seriously. And the happening is him at his most gone like, off the rails, just completely lost his goddamn mind. I guess to like kind of wrap it up though, like he has had such an interesting career in filmography. Like you just look through his movies and they he creates these iconic movie moments. Everything he's done, like he hasn't done anything boring. Except, or, pre- or predictable. I don't know what he's going to do next. Yeah. And so he's still like really exciting all these years later. And uh, I think time will be very kind to M. Night Shyamalan. 
Like, I think he gets kind of shat on in the present a little bit. But, um, man, this dude is like a fucking great filmmaker. And we're going to have to go back and watch Airbender and uh, that we should do that just to like sort of like, you know, pop this balloon a little bit because I've been told that the happening is terrible and, you know, Lady in the Water is terrible, and I got enjoyment out of those films. So I, I don't know. Like, I, I need we to have should, this, we should this watch bubble burst. Too. Yeah. Totally. I can't gush. At the, I could gush longer, but I shouldn't. Um. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I got it out. I love him, Night Shyamalan. I'm not uh, ashamed to admit it. <laughs> That's very brave of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we mentioned it's Mardi Gras at the top of the show. If you want to see Swamp Flicks' official Mardi Gras crew, it's Crew Divine. There's a link at the top of our homepage at swampflicks.com that's just pictures of every year Divine goes out. It's four or five of us all dressed up like various Divine characters from various movies. If you are happen to be in the quarter on Mardi Gras Day and you see five people who don't quite have their shit together, sort of sloppily dressed like Divine, it's definitely us. Come say hello. <laughs> Uh, and if not, you could just look at pictures of us from the now our third year operating as Crew Divine, the official Swamp Flicks Mardi Gras crew. <laughs> and we'll come back with you all in a couple weeks with another episode. Yeah, and happy Mardi Gras. Happy Mardi Gras to everyone. Bye. Bye.